The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 28 of the Ascent of Board Games. I am one of your many hosts, Brian Schoner. I am accompanied by a bunch of people who I can't go around the table and introduce because, of course, we're in separate places. So I'll just talk about each of them in turn. They can say who they are. Joe, who are you? I'm a, I'm a ghost as far as I can tell at this point. I mean, this far in the pandemic, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. Jason, what's your story? I'm Jason Ware, and I'm a shell of my former self. <laughs> I'm so sorry, man. <laughs> Then we have Mike Kodab Hanft. Hey, everybody. My name's Kodab, and I've been playing games over at Kodab Games on Twitch, so come join me. And then, of course, we have the archivist, Frank Branham. Yep. Um, 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 I'm here. At this point in 2020, I think that's about all any of us can say for certain. So, yeah, hope everybody's doing all right. If all goes according to plan, this episode will be coming out on November 1st. So if you're in the United States and you haven't already, please vote, because... Boy, is it important. So this month, we are going to be talking about negotiation games. Now, in almost any competitive game, obviously there's some degree of negotiation back and forth, but we're talking about games where like, a focus of the gameplay is haggling and dealing, probably with relatively few limits. You have to haggle with the other players in order to make progress or win the game. And to start us off, I'm going to talk about what is probably one of the granddaddies of negotiation games. I'm only going to talk about it briefly because we've discussed it in depth earlier. Diplomacy, released in 1954. I have two dates here, and I'm well, confused. Well, 1954 is when he developed the game. 1959 is when he actually released it as a game. So the first published version was 1959 by Alan Callhammer from Games Research. And if you're not familiar with this, then you probably still have most of your friends. <laughs> Diplomacy is a simulation of Europe before and during World War I. Everybody has three or four units to start the game. All units have equal strength, and if an equal number of units fight each other, nothing happens. So the whole key to the game is convincing people to support your armies to try and take over key places. Everybody's negotiating with everyone all the time, and then everyone writes down their orders, and they're all revealed simultaneously. So you have all sorts of wonderful opportunities for betrayal and backstabbing which happens a lot, and this game has been known to end friendships. I almost lost friend of the show, John, uh, when I was teaching him diplomacy, and we were doing really well, and then at one point I wanted to teach him that diplomacy is a game of betrayal, and that didn't end up going as well as I'd hoped. I mean, I think one of the things that's probably <laughs> worth emphasizing, right, because it's really unique in board games, I think. There are very few board games that also share this. There's literally no random in the game whatsoever. Not at Zero all. Zero random. Mm-hmm. Which is unusual. Most games have at least some kind of, like they have an event per turn or they have something that contributes to some randomness. Diplomacy has no randomness. It's all people. Yep. And it is definitely a game that can sort of grow to dominate a lot of your gaming time. There are um, still a lot of super hardcore diplomacy players. The national tournaments back when that was a thing that happened were extraordinarily cutthroat. And it's still a five, six hour plus game as is. Yeah, no, it's a big commitment. There's a, a version I like a fair bit that's a two hour game. I mean, there's been a lot of diplomacy clones. 
Avalon Hill did Machiavelli. Tilsit did a game called Africa 1880, which is kind of weird. It's basically multiple country ownership of Africa or, you know, colonization of Africa. The weird thing there is you can share regions with everyone, with one of the big declarations being whether you're at peace or at war with somebody. And if there are more people at war with you in a region than are at peace, you're just eliminated. Hmm, interesting. So you can just collude and wipe someone off the board in seconds. It's even more brutal in diplomacy in some ways. And diplomacy, as we said, can be a very long game to play physically. Also, if you're out, you're out. So it's very possible that you play for an hour or so, and then everybody else is off there in the afternoon while you're finding a deck of cards and playing solitaire. And finding new friends. And finding new friends in some cases. The lucky ones die (laughs) early. I tend to play it when I play it anymore online, and while you can probably do some real-time ones on any of the various uh, gaming platforms, I tend to play by email because it gives everyone a lot of time to craft their letters. You do maybe a turn or two a week. There are a number of good online resources if you want to try it out. And also, if I'm playing with people over email, I don't have to worry if I make them hate me forever because I'm using a fake email address and they don't know who I am. (laughs) So the trick is playing with people that aren't your friends. Got it. Playing with people that you'll hopefully never see again is really kind of the (laughs) ideal way to do it. That's the first real hardcore negotiation game we could find. And basically, everything is in play and nothing is committed. If you say, yes, I will totally support you into Berlin if you support me into Moscow... And then you put in your orders and you don't do that thing and they do. Well, more fool them for listening to you. It's all about figuring out who you can trust and learning that the correct answer is no one. Hey, what if we were in space? Because back in 1977, you know, let's just put everything in space. So Cosmic Encounter was published by Eon Games originally and later reprinted by Fantasy Flight. And everyone else. Yeah, I was going to say, it's been reprinted (laughs) by just about everyone. Sure. I think the most recent edition is Fantasy Flight, and they have, in their Fantasy Flight tradition, really upped the bits and artistic assets. The one that I'm most familiar with is certainly the Fantasy Flight version. The point of this game is that each player has a unique alien race that they are playing as, and each one has their own unique abilities. I think we've actually talked about this a little bit before when we were talking about unique yeah, player powers. play we talked yep. about then. Which is a, a huge part of this game, because every race has a power that kind of breaks the rules of the game in some way. The whole objective of the game is to occupy five systems, and you do that by negotiating with your conspirators to overthrow each other. The weird thing about Cosmic Encounter is Basically, a flip of a token tells you which person's planets you have to attack. And then what you do is both of you, the attacker and defender, then both call for allies to commit chips to help you in your combat. And then the result of combat is count the chips on a side, plus a secret card played that has a value on it. And that's the game, except for the billions of special powers, plus at least core players are playing with two or three powers per player. And the powers are deeply wound into the game system. Yeah, that basically is the game. Mechanically, the combat itself is almost laughably simple, but it's the negotiation of the alliances that make it super complicated. There have been, in various editions, a couple expansions that add more chunky bits to the game itself. 
Yeah, in true Fantasy Flight fashion, I'm counting six separate expansions for this one game for them. <laughs> the original mm-hmm. had nine, so... Oh my gosh. <laughs> suck it, Fantasy Flight. <laughs> <laughs> They'll get there. <laughs> this may have been one of the first games, certainly one of the first ones I was aware of, that had a bunch of expansions. Yeah, true. It's so easy to do, because you've got all the mechanics in the game for four or five players, or maybe even six. I don't remember how many the base game supported, and it's just like, here's a bunch more alien powers. But actually, yeah, Lucre was an expansion in the original. And Lucre's, you know, core central to the game now. I do think that this game solved one of the problems that Diplomacy had, and that is the choosing to attack someone was taken out of your hands. Like Frank said, down to that random flip. So it's like, oh, Brian, I'm I sorry, don't John. Want I have to be to attacking attack. you, <laughs> but the game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> of course, it does add a certain amount of swinginess because if someone is ahead and nobody happens to get in a position to attack them then they're probably going to win. The powers in this game are just absolutely ridiculous. This was also, I think, one of the first games with different player powers, and it really just defines what you do. I'm trying to think of some of the cooler examples. There are ones that, like, whenever someone makes a successful attack and you ally with them, you get to add an extra guy from your army into it, or you can force yourself into allying with either side, whether or not they want you to. There's one that's like, you win by losing. Like, if you lose a bunch of times, you're in, you're instead the winner. Oh, it's a Loki strategy from Blood Rage. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Out of curiosity, right? So I know this game supports a ton of players. Do you just start with one system, and can you be eliminated from the game? If you're, like, the last player to play, and someone draws your system as the token, and they annihilate you, are you out of the game? You start with five systems Okay. in your own region, and you need five systems outside your region to win. Got it. I think, in theory, you can get eliminated, but I don't know that I've seen it happen. Yeah, you, like, lose your powers when you're down to one system or something. Something like that, yeah. Now, I had not realized this, but apparently Fantasy Flight is coming out with Cosmic Encounter Duel, following in the tradition of what-if game but two-player, which we've seen with, like, Seven Wonders and stuff like that. I don't actually know anything about this, but I can't imagine that... A diplomacy game would work all that well. With the call for allies partners. section is going to be real awkward. <laughs> Mike, Mike, uh-huh. it's called a cash-in. <laughs> I mean, I do like money. So does Fantasy Flight, and they will be happy to take yep. yours off your hand. But you're a teacher, so you don't have any money anyway. <laughs> no, God, no. Speaking of taking other people's money. Woohoo. Next game on the list is called Junta. It was originally released in 1978 by Creative War Games Workshop, which I didn't know. The first one I got was West Ends about 10 years later. Designed by Eric Goldberg, Ben Grossman, Steve Marsh, Vincent Sow, and Nicola Vrutis. As the name suggests, this is a game about power politics in the Republica de los Bananas. It's a banana republic somewhere in Central America. Culturally, maybe not appropriate, but the 70s and 80s were a different time. Brian, I don't like your description. I'll declare a junta on this description. <laughs> I mean, let me finish talking about the rules, please. I've already declared a junta. we got to go through a whole combat, which is meaningless, and then... I vote I vote that Joe <laughs> takes over the description uh, no, for this game. You. I'm going to point out that you don't declare a junta. Junta is the ruling group. You declare a coup attempt. I used the wrong word, so you may continue. Thank you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it is a game that supports up to seven players. One of them, randomly determined at the start of the game, is El Presidente. And he basically hands out various roles to the other players. There are several generals of the armies. They've got the Air Force, the Navy. There's like a, an intelligence officer, I think. And basically, the normal course of the game is the president draws the foreign aid budget, which is basically a number of cards from this face-down stack of money cards. And they are usually in values of one, two, or three. And invariably, the president says, oh, it's very bad this year. The budget is all ones. 
And basically, he gives money to the other players, or he proposes a budget to give money to the other players. Uh, give three million pesetas to the general of the first army, and two million to the navy guy, and one million to the, the general of the second army. And then everyone votes on that, and you can play cards to get different votes and that sort of thing. If the budget passes, he gives the money out, and whatever is left over, he keeps himself. Which is most of it. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> it wasn't really all ones. So you hand out the money, and then everyone decides where they're going to be for the turn. And there's, you know, six or seven different locations. You can be at home, you can be at your mistress's house, you can be, you know, at the office building, at the nightclub, whatever. And the reason that's important is because certain people will be playing assassination cards. And they say, I'm going to try and assassinate El Presidente or the commander of the Air Force or whatever at the nightclub or the mistress or whatever. And if they do that, you're sort of out for a turn and you lose your office and El Presidente takes over. Or technically El Presidente's brother takes over, but he's played by El Presidente, so it's fine. And one of the locations is the bank. And if you go there, you can take any or all of the money you have on you and put it in your Swiss bank account, which is ultimately how you win, by having the most money in your hidden Swiss bank account at the end of the game. So obviously that's a popular hangout for assassins. The president is basically trying to hoard up as much money as he can and get it off to the Swiss bank account. At some point, the other players will get fed up with this, and they will declare a coup, at which point it becomes a tactical war game. The various commanders get control of their various military units, which are on the map of the city. You have cards that you can do to play additional protesters or foreign military advisors or whatever they might be. And then you play a couple turns of a little war game to see who has control of the key locations. Whichever side wins that, become the ruling class. They declare a new president. They have other people exiled or shot. And the cycle continues. The game is very thematic. It's funny to play. The whole thinking back and forth about the locations, getting everything here is a lot of fun. The problem that I have with this game, at least in its original form, is that people who are frustrated with the way things are can declare a coup functionally every turn if they want to. And are not disincentivized to do right. otherwise? Nope, totally not. They will get executed, but if they feel like they have nothing to lose, then you know the next person and their family comes in and they start again next turn. And the problem is coups slow the game to a crawl because you're having this kind of relatively fast-paced negotiation and bluffing game, and then you play six turns of a combat simulation before you get to move on. And yeah, it's 30, 45 minutes to take out a coup at least. There is a card game version, which I understand has done a lot to streamline that nonsense. I haven't played it myself, but if I were to play it again, that's probably what I'd look for. There was a particular game with a particular friend of the show who was basically doing that, declaring a coup every turn, and made us all very angry, and we never played the game again. Still fun, though, if you have people with the right mindset. I do wish that the actual execution of the coup state of the game was streamlined, but also it really needs consequences. Oh, yes. Like, if there was permanent player elimination, which in 1978 would not have been entirely outside the norm... I think something like that would have gone a long way to make it a much more strategic decision of when do I perform a coup than what happened in the one time we played it, which is just, well, I'm not winning, so coup. Oh, look, I'm still not winning. Coup again. I do want to take a look at both the card game and this one called Junta El Presidente, which I think is going to fix a lot of those issues. Oh, definitely. And Hunter the dice game is cute. It doesn't really quite feel like Hunter, and it doesn't really have the negotiation aspects. Has anybody seen the uh, the box art cover for uh, the German version of Hunter? It's pretty amazing. <laughs> oh, I have that to is look gorgeous. At that link. 
So El Presidente is on the cover of the box, holding up a cigar, and an assassin's bullet is going through the tip of the cigar and blowing his hat off. <laughs> Where wow. all the hidden money falls Which out of. Which is filling out money onto yes. his car. That is more or less the essence of Junto right there. This game also contains one of my favorite cards ever, because all the various event cards are things like workers' unions revolt, add to dock worker units in the, in the docks or whatever. But my favorite event card is one that says, students circulate petition condemning repression. No effect. <laughs> It's sad but true, man. It's a game and a social commentary. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Exactly. (laughs) So, from the hot, steamy tropics, Joe, do you want to talk about someplace a little less moist? It has an appropriate level of moisture for the environment. The next game isn't only a negotiation game, but one phase of it is a negotiation game, and we're talking about Dune released in 1979 uh, by Avalon Hill, designed by Bill Ilbert, Eberly, Jack Kutridge, and Peter Orlatka. Nailed it. Nailed it. Same people that designed Cosmic Encounter, so they're... Ooh. And you can kind of tell... Oh, yeah. The player powers breaking rules motif between both Cosmic Encounters and Dune is very strong. In Dune, you can negotiate for lots of different things. The game heavily encourages you to try to buy or sell information, right? If you have a special power that allows you to tell you how fast the storm is going to move or a secret power that allows you to look at the next treachery card and figure out if someone should buy it or not. You can very easily sell that information. You can't exchange money normally during the combat phase of the game, but otherwise you can freely exchange money with each other. You're encouraged to make use of your specific player powers to make a couple of spice on the side, letting the Atreides pay the Fremen so they know where the next spice blow is going to be and all that kind of stuff. So The spice must flow, and it does a lot. It's really interesting because this is also, I'm pretty sure we talked about this during our Asymmetrical Games episode, because the player powers and structure are very different. The Emperor controls the financial system of the game, so whenever anybody pays money to buy a card, they are paying him. So the more expensive card gets, the more money the Emperor gets. Anybody who is moving troops onto or around the planet is playing the Spacers Guild, so they're getting all that money. On the other hand, you have the Bene Gesserit who basically start with one unit. They just get to sort of tag along with anybody else who comes on the planet. They're just, they're, they're hanging spiritual out. It's advisors. Fine. Where the negotiation really comes in is to win the game, you need to have a certain number of the key locations on the board. It depends on the number of players. If a player or a faction controls a majority of those at the end of a turn, they will win. And periodically during the game, at random, come periods that are called nexuses. And basically, that's the only time you can make or break formal alliances. And alliances in the game are very formal. They give you specific abilities to use each other's powers and that sort of thing. And so if a nexus comes up at the right time, a couple players that are in the right position can sort of look at each other and say, if we ally with each other, we both win right now. Although you do finish out the turn. So there's a chance for everything to shift. So it's a game that can last generally between 45 minutes and three hours. One thing that I will point out that I just thought about with Dune is that up until the 80s, so far, everything we've talked about, a lot of these negotiation games come down to territory control. Junta was all about money, but... Although the coup does rely on territory control as well. Mm -hmm. And, like, that's an interesting theme because, especially with diplomacy and whatnot, that is reflecting how negotiation is used on a political landscape to control. Dune, I think, also has a lot of that where... 
it's less important about, you know, what your power is and just where you are on the board, because I think like the Bene Gesserit can win with only a few troops on the board. It's really interesting, I think, how tightly themed this game is. I mean, the powers are really great in terms of representing the structure of the books and that sort of thing. What's interesting is that the original design apparently wasn't based on Dune at all. Dune being the Frank Herbert novel, for those who didn't get that reference. But, you know, when they started to adapt to the theme, it just, it's so tightly integrated. Uh, Fantasy Flight at one point re-released a version of it called Rex, which is based in their Twilight Imperium universe. Cash grab. Yep. (laughs) And even though it's functionally, mechanically almost identical, it just did not land for me because Dune is just so tightly connected to the books and the story thereof. Yeah. But the other thing Dune does that most games really don't do as well is the dramatic shifts and just the moments it has taking down the shield wall with the family atomics mm-hmm. letting the storm sweep over that's totally there and it's a big game shift as well as you can lose a combat by just having a traitor in your ranks that's an instant loss there's no mm-hmm. nothing you do about it there is nothing more special than that moment in dune when you are going up against somebody and they reveal their commander and you're just like they are my traitor <laughs> Gale Force 9 came out with a new edition last year, which is really pretty and also more or less the only way you can get the game now unless you want to pay exorbitant prices on eBay for some of the old Avalon Hill ones. So if you're interested at all in a game that is full of negotiation and bluffing and epic moments, check Dune out. It really wants six players. Playing with less is just not nearly as good. I have a confession. I've never actually read the oh, Dune Mike. novels, so... Just oh, read the first man. one. That's you all should you read yeah. the first one, exactly. Yeah, the first one is an amazing piece of sci-fi work. And then there are some other books. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like, they go increasingly more crazy. Mm-hmm. Not in a bad way, but in a crazy way. <laughs> when you jump ahead a thousand years or so... Dune is another one of those weird games where there are a lot of variant rule sets and errata and clarifications going on. Because this was another one that showed up a lot in things like the World Board Game Championships, that sort of thing. So the original rules were fine, but sometimes sparse in some areas. And so there's been a lot of sort of Supreme Court legal commentary about what we think this rule means and how it's actually going to be used. The other thing that's interesting is like when we play it, there's the basic rules and the advanced rules. And we use some of the advanced rules but not all of them. I think we use the advanced rules. We don't use the optional rules, which are another set. There's a lot of rules. I would have sworn there was some set of rules that we like cut in half and like took some of them and threw away the rest of them. Because like yeah. I thought in one of the rule sets that we use some of the rules from is the one where you pay money when you're doing combat, which makes combat stupid and take forever. Mm-hmm. So you see, my dear podcast listeners, before you even begin playing Dune, you must sit down with your conspirators and negotiate what set of rules you will be I playing see what with. you did there. Ah, then 80s and 90s, this is where uh, I became rabidly insane about games. Our first game here is by Sid Saxon, my favorite designer. Metropolis is probably in my top five games. And for those of you who have just joined us recently, Frank's list of top five games is approximately 87 games long. Yeah, totally. This one's probably really top five. Sid Saxon, 1984, Robin's has never been republished, which is absolutely criminal. Metropolis is city planning, which fits comfortably in a space between Chinatown and Big City, if that means anything for those of you who are into city planning games. So it's got some negotiation, but not as much as Chinatown, and more 
point juggling, reminiscent of Big City. So basically what you've got is a big empty board with a bunch of numbers representing plots of land and uh, cards, which have the same numbers. And a bunch of surprisingly nice for 1984 plastic buildings with spaces for chips representing factories, shopping malls, apartments, houses, schools, hospitals, etc. Every turn, you basically have uh, four choices to take a plot of land. However, there's an issue in that if a block of the city has so many, I think it's if five of those have been claimed, then the only person who can take a plot of land is someone who's next to the vacant lot. Some kind of weird zoning laws in this city. So what can happen is some plots of land are much more valuable to other people because of the shape of their building. And at this point, you're forced to, forced actually, to negotiate being able to trade them between one of two people hand basically that plot of land to one of two people who could actually take that plot in exchange for whatever you can get. As well, the game often allows you to trade points and go in together on building buildings. And since there's a tight limit on buildings, like there's only one shopping mall, you're really forced to consider and negotiate all the way through this game, with the only real structure being... uh, Take a plot of land, and if you get the right shape together, build a building. And then there's an entire chart, an elaborate chart of how points are given out at the end of the game. Whether you're along the river, whether you have view of a park, don't put schools next to factories, etc. The cover is very boring. Oh yeah, totally. The board itself is kind of interesting in a weird 80s pastel kind of way. Yeah, and the buildings, of course, make the game. It's a little dry, but it's a very direct negotiation, discussion, trading. I noticed uh, when I was looking on Board Game Geek about this, there was a thread in the forums that says Metropolis to be re-released, which was last updated 10 years ago. I know. So that does not appear to have happened. (laughs) I know. And ah, it's criminal. I love this game. You should talk to your good friends at Stronghold Games. Yeah, really. I do kind of like the Tetrisness of the buildings and how that plays into the game. I could see this being one of those transformational games where the state of the board has a appreciable change as you play. And I always really enjoy that in yeah. games. And I think the plastic buildings are a big part. Because, yeah, you do start with just a completely flat, empty board. Well, and it's green and it looks pretty. And then we ruin it by putting buildings there. <laughs> because human beings. And the buildings aren't super detailed. They're pretty abstract, really. Did you see the uh, Kickstarter that still hasn't been filled yet, because I think it's coming out next year, called Foundations of Rome? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it, this heavily reminds me of that, but with more plastic crack and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure more rules on top of it. When you posted these pictures, like, oh, that looks exactly like Foundations of Rome. So I guess I know where they got that idea from. We should move on to something that is a little, it's actually not abstract, but it is, oh my god, dry. <laughs> We're going to talk about German elections with 1986's infamous Demacher. Board Game Geek game number one. Not in ranking, just the first game anybody put into the system. Yeah, Dirk was a huge fan, and still is. (laughs) Demacher meaning the machine. This is Karl-Heinz Schmiel's masterpiece, self-published by Mosquito Games, later by Valley Games. This is a big, sprawling, multi-hour, Euro political game. There are seven turns. You hold seven elections in regions, getting various votes. Then in a kind of a electoral college, 
whoever gets majorities in each region gets so many essentially electoral votes that then go into the final election and somebody wins. The game involves basically manipulating the media, changing your party platform to be pro-against, matching up with other party platforms as well as the will of the people that turns into your points and votes, as well as just, you know, buying votes right out. It's a complex, multi-phase, giant, can I get the most points in that region? And you're playing for the next three regions in one turn. So you can commit stuff easier for future if it looks like you're just going to be locked out of the current turn's election. And then, of course, there's negotiation. The big point in negotiation really comes in with coalitions. Like we talked about for Dune, here at any time, you can basically say, let's you know form a coalition for this. We can win. We'll split the points for first place. It's almost an archetypal Euro game, partly because it was one of the big early ones that I knew about when I was getting into gaming. But the yeah. sort of big, complicated, dry, multi-level it is definitely an acquired taste. Yeah, and it's a three to four hour game, so it has the feel of those big old giant Euro games, but it was a time that you weren't seeing those at all. El Grande would be the closest one to that time period, and that's only an hour and a half, fairly light majority game compared. This is one of the throwbacks to sort of the Dune Diplomacy all day committed event game. Yeah, and for such a dry topic and everything, it is an absolutely compelling game. There's so many possibilities and so much going on that you can do. And just managing your resources is tricky. I think it leans a little heavily on aligning your party's platforms. One of the things you have to worry about is to make a coalition, you do have to at least agree on a couple of platform topics, which you adjust through cards that you get randomly. So it takes a little work to form a coalition. So it's not like you start out with a particular political party that says we're in favor of workers' rights and against public health care or whatever. Yeah, it basically is, but that's randomly generated by turning up some cards for you. I think there should be a storytelling that we have to explain why your political party likes this weird combination of things. Yeah, and uh, the parties are weird because of their completely random. I'm not going to lie. This is a game that has haunted many a conventions that I have been to. I have never actually seen it hit the table. And uh, going through these pictures and listening to that description, I'm not entirely certain I could get through it. Hey, you play High Frontier. It actually plays better, although it looks dry. I mean, there's a bunch of cubes, some cards, and a bunch of abstract symbols and pictures of German provinces. And you're going, really? It is more flavorful than a lot of modern Euros and not that complicated compared to some Mm. of the really sprawling chaos. But uh, yeah, it's still pretty dry. Although it was reprinted recently, I don't think this is a game that's going to get a lot of new fans. I think it's mostly the same people who have been hardcore about it for a while. Yeah, really. Which, more power to them. Yeah, it's it's definitely classic. I think the one more classic I want to sneak in is Derek Carver's 1987 Blood Royale, published by Games Workshop. It's a big territory, medieval takeover regions. Blood Royale, though, deals a lot about families and marriage. And of course, you have to track your people in your particular little royal line and everything. But every time you have a marriage, you also generally arrange a political marriage contract. And the game encourages you to write down these contracts. And literally, both of you sign them with specific rules that must be followed. 
and future concessions and everything are often coded in rules that you create and write down during the game. Huh. The rest of the game's not amazingly innovative, except for that marriage and actually coding your agreements. That seems like a lot of work. It is. It's a long, I mean, nine so it's to the game hours. of prenups. Yeah, exactly. You know, I am fascinated that we have not seen more negotiation games based on lawyering. <laughs> Especially rules lawyering, because, I mean, come on, we all know that every table has that one person who... Yeah, but do you want lawyer. to empower that person to rules lawyer harder? No, no, Joe, think about it. We get all of those one people from separate tables, put them together at one table, and just... Let and then the rest of us it. could go on and play games that we enjoy. Really, it's brilliant. <laughs> I mean, it's too long and a little too tedious. Really, I did love the idea of, you know, having to deal with families, members, marriages, but uh, just a little too painful. But you had to stick it in there. The idea is so awesome. And I've never really seen anyone try to do it again to that level. So we've talked about... Demacher in the sense of a long, complicated, detailed political simulation. If you want to get that sort of sense of political advancement and negotiation in a much shorter and more abstract frame, why not try Quo Vadis? Originally released in 1992 from Hansim Gluck by the legendary Reiner Knizia. And unlike a lot of Knizia games, this one is less mathy and more haggly. Basically, it's a game about getting the members of your family into high and higher positions in the Roman governance and eventually into the inner sanctum. The board is kind of like a corporate flowchart. You've got spaces at the bottom, which is where new politicians enter the game, and then sort of a network of lines and spaces moving up into different committees until you finally reach the inner sanctum at the top. It works kind of as a bureaucracy simulation as well, because on your turn, you put a guy on the board in an empty space in the bottom part of the board, And then in order to move up to a further space, you need to have the positive votes of a majority of the people in that space. There are some one-person committees where you just basically move up whenever you want, as long as there's a space above you. And there are three- and five-person committees. And if you have the majority yourself, you can just push your people up into those higher-ranking positions. Other than that, you will have to negotiate and get agreements with the people who are sharing that committee with you. They do get points when they help you. You get more points generally when you advance. And basically, you need to get somebody into the final chamber and then have the most victory points at the end. It's structurally pretty simple. The interesting bit is that you are trying to maneuver people around, getting into the different organizations. There is a Caesar token that you can move back and forth to ease your path, but it also means that you're not getting points for that advancement. You're calling in political favors, as it were. I think you can even give laurels around to negotiate. It's It's been a long time. Yeah, you can give away points. Points are just another thing that you can trade to get people upward. Yeah. So it's still a little bit on the abstract side, but it's neat because you have a lot of different paths up to the top of the game. But again, it's a game of pure negotiation and making sure you can get what you want from other people without giving away too much. Yeah. Reiner Kinesius, it's not one of his better known games, but it's great as, you know, a lot of his early games were just stunning. There's a lot of reasons why he's so heavily worshipped. And yeah, this is another one. How about some more literal life and death struggles? Oh, yeah, we'll just kind of get past all these dry, tedious games with a game about drowning. (laughs) A game known as Lifeboats, published by Z-Man Games, but known to very few of us as uh, Retzik Khan, published by Walter Mueller Spiel, 
designed by Ronald Vettering. This is an absolutely no luck, vicious, brutal, <laughs> evil, evil game. It's simple. A ship sunk. You don't see the ship sinking. You have six gorgeous big wooden lifeboats, and you have a bunch of pawns inside the lifeboats, all of them headed toward these three islands at the end of the board. Basically, each island's worth some points. You get points for making it to the island with a pawn, and that's the game. Except for the fact that the lifeboats all leak. And everything in this game happens by vote. So first of all, one of the lifeboats moves forward, and you vote based on the color of which one goes forward. If everybody has the same number of pawns to start the game, I assume, how is the voting done when you're voting for which boat moves? You have a color wheel. Everyone dials in their color wheel and turn them up. One that gets the most votes moves. Okay, yeah, yeah. There's also a very important brown starter stick. The person who has it, and it passes around every turn, gets to break any ties. So if there are ties, he decides among the ties as well. He decides when negotiations end. There's no timer in this game. So basically you can go, okay, a ship moves. No discussion. <laughs> or when you like the way the discussion's going, as people are discussing about moving ahead the red boat that you're happy with, you end discussion and hope that people don't dial in secretly something <laughs> else. But anyway, second thing that happens every turn is one of the boats springs a leak which, yeah, okay, that's not good. There are these little blue things you put inside that take up space in the boat. And then, of course, if there's not room for in the boat to place a leak, then the people on board that particular lifeboat can then vote to see who to throw overboard. And that person can either swim to another board drown, which is more common. <laughs> if any particular boat happens to have more leaks then people hit sinks and the entire thing goes under nice that's the game the only other rule is that the captain's hat's apparently floating around in the ocean at this time and once per game you can use your captain's hat which is to basically say you decide the vote and there's a spot on the dial for the captain's hat hmm. and um hmm. that's the game it's a lot of fun it's really short and yeah when you're in a lifeboat deciding who dies it seems like, I guess, the only thing you have to promise is, I won't vote you off next time kind of thing. There's a lot of voting, and the negotiation tends to be about who to gang up on this turn. <laughs> the leader, obviously. But then the leader depends on, I mean, it's a very dynamic situation. And there is that kind of negotiation discussion, because there is a fixed link discussion round with the time fixed by whoever has the starter stick. And it feels like a negotiation game, but it doesn't really have the things you can trade. But the situation's complex enough that you can, you know, occasionally, hey, if we sink this, etc. And sometimes you can make it two factions, especially the blue and the green and the yellow and the red. Each one move different ships. So you have a discussion of maybe you should use the captain's hat during this discussion phase. I kind of like that mechanic of having the length of the negotiations be determined by a player because like up until now it's either been a timer or just completely unaddressed within negotiation games which you know you go back and look at things like junta and dune up until this point just the the length of how long negotiations can go on for has just been unaddressed by games so i think adding that in does kind of give a certain 
power to whoever controls the stick, yeah. which I think is interesting. And yeah, if you have the stick, you know, okay, everyone vote blue in a discussion is entirely <laughs> possible. I like the, uh, I gotta say that the German name of this is even more brutal. Uh, it's like basically every man for himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, uh, I found a great picture of someone who'd modded their set. So there's two different types of units. There's regular sailors and then there's officers. And the officers are slightly larger pawns, and they're really hard to tell apart. So this guy glued little Lego sailor hats on the officers. Nice. <laughs> nice. That made me very happy. That's adorable. And this game should not be confused with Lifeboat, yeah. which is apparently very different. Well, I know that our next game, which came out one year later in 1994 from Schmitzbiel, also a Sid Saxon game had a similar mechanic of somebody just throwing down in such a fashion that they get to decide what the vote is, and that is, I'm the boss. Or, Kokes Kinet. Kinet. Yeah. Nailed it. This game is all about negotiating for money, and you do that through a hand of cards, which may consist of investors or other special powers that can affect votes. On your turn, you are going to either roll the dice to move the single pawn on the board to a new space, with each space being a different deal that can be negotiated over. Or, on your turn, instead of rolling the dice, you can begin to initiate a deal, or draw three cards to get more investors. So you've got some options of what happens on your turn. The meat of the game really occurs when that negotiation begins, because each space has a number of shares and a number of required investors. And then it also will give you specific investors that are needed in order to complete the deal. As you are playing, you can either complete a deal by yourself, or what is more likely to happen is you are going to get other people involved so that they can also play investors into the negotiations. And once you have decided, you're going to split up the shares as was determined during the negotiation and pay people what their shares are. The problem with all of this is that there are those other cards that allow you to mess with people's negotiations. For example, there are some that will just be like, hey, you know that investor that you've just played? Yet yeah, he's on vacation. He's not here. Bye. Or I think there is one that even allowed you to take control of other people's negotiations conveniently that card is called i'm the boss hmm. yeah at which point when you play that card you just say all right all right all right here's what's actually gonna happen you're gonna get this much money you're gonna get this much money and you're gonna get this much money and you're We're gonna done. like it yep which i think is kind of an interesting twist where it's like hey you could go into a negotiation with expectations and then somebody could just completely throw those out the window the other factor to keep in mind is that the game has variable length, which is determined by the value of deals. Every time, I think it's three deals are made, the shares become more valuable. I think over the course of 15 rounds, but when you get down to the last five deals, the game could end when any one of those is made based on a die roll. And this game led to, I think, one of the most epic events I've ever witnessed in a board game. It was at basically an Ameritrash small convention that was held in Atlanta. And the legendary Dan Baden, who um, was playing I'm the Boss, he's a big fan of negotiation games. And at one point, he just basically said, during an agreement of a deal, he said, pay me a dollar, just out of the blue. And he's like, what are you going to give me? Nothing. Just pay me a dollar. 
And the guy was like, fine, I, okay, fine, I'll pay you a dollar. And at that point, you know, the rest of the group was like, no, 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 you idiot. <laughs> Do not pay this man a dollar. It's just a dollar. I'm fine. And there's like, okay, you're going to lose by that dollar. And if you lose by that dollar, you will hear for forever be known as Dan Baden's bitch. <laughs> the problem is when they reach the end of the game, I'm summing up the final tally of money. He was $1 less than Dan. <laughs> and so we hear this massive shriek of poor Gary falling to his knees, screaming out loud, I am Dan Baden's bitch. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, like all in all, this is, I think, a fine negotiation game. Face-to-Face Games did a reprint of it. That might actually be the 1994 release. The Schmitzbiel no, Games, I think, I think the Schmitzbiel was 1994. I'm the Boss was probably oh, really? later okay. in the early 2000s. They did try to do a personalized version on Kickstarter. This was actually done by, I think, Griffin Games, which has had various success and failures on Kickstarter. They pulled this project, though, because as it turns out, not many people, I think, knew about it. And then even further, wanted their own pictures in the game. And of course, this is Sid Saxon, so how can you go wrong? People need to like play more Sid Saxon games. Clearly what they need to do, especially given the current surge of nostalgia that people of a certain age are having, they just need to retheme I'm the Boss with Tony Danza and Alyssa Milano. And, oh, uh, no. Yeah, no, no, no. You're just making fun of me because I originally wrote down who's the boss is the game name, aren't you? We will forever wonder who is. I mean, to be the fair, boss. community totally answered that question. And this is Intrigue 1994 Amigo, designed by Stefan Dora, and it's this is not even a game. I swear, it's <laughs> that's a good start. <laughs> really? But why are we even talking about it? <laughs> Honestly, it's all of the the viciousness and backstabbing and betrayal of diplomacy compressed no into a tiny little box. Actually, I have a slightly bigger box because I have the original version. Ooh. Oh yeah, with this gorgeous printed paper money. So there's a minimum minimum of rules. Everyone has this little parlor and a few jobs in their household that they need people to be hired for. And you have a big island of outcasts in the middle of the board for the people that didn't get hired. And every turn, a job becomes available in your little household. And people will basically, on their turns, be placing their cousins, nephews, whatever, rejects from their family into your parlor and you have to kind of interview them and for your one job that's open that'll then give them salary for several turns and when you say interview <laughs> when you say interview you start to the left and just go around the table and at that point everyone just basically says you know what they'll promise or what they'll bribe you for to hire their cousin they basically pay you any bribes immediately up front any promises or promises and you basically calculate all the bribes and promises that have been paid to you. They don't go back to anyone. And then you do whatever the hell you want and hire whichever one you want. No criteria. Just do whatever you want. Thank you for the $10,000. I've decided <laughs> to go in a different direction. Yeah. And everyone else goes to the island where they're banished and basically out of the game. And uh, that's the game. Or the not game or the box of being mean to each other. <laughs> but it actually is a game. Sort of. I mean, you track who kind of is in the lead, money secret. You kind of have this ebb and flow. 
But you also have a lot of just dissing someone for spite because <laughs> they didn't hire your cousin Ralph. When we've played this, uh, one particular amazingly enjoyable game was us choosing a faux Italian accents, explaining how wonderful our cousin Lorenzo would be as your butler. Yeah, it's it's basically a charming little game of nepotism and betrayal. Oh, yeah. And lies. All lies. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's nothing good or happy that comes out of the game. It's just spite. But it's gloriously spiteful. In a way that distills that whole diplomacy feeling down to about 45 minutes. And because there's less of a time commitment, I think people are less likely to hate you forever than they are in diplomacy. Eh, not always. I mean, you didn't spend three hours building up to a climactic attack on England only to be stabbed at the last minute. You spent half an hour trying to get Lorenzo a decent job. Yeah, totally. And it's BS that he wasn't hired. I think ultimately we can all decide that Brian is really just looking for a negotiation game in this episode that will not result in him losing all of his friends. I haven't actually lost any friends over diplomacy or anything else. It's just come close. I'm so inherently likable that it it never has long-term effects. Pretty much. Pretty much. (laughs) I did get a good shouted at during a game of Intrigue, though. Oh, sure. Yeah, there's definitely yelling. Oh, yeah. That moves us on to a game that I imagine anyone who's listening to a board gaming podcast has probably heard of. Settlers of Catan, or Catan. There's going to be some millennials and people who haven't played it because it's out of fashion. There's too much luck. Right, but but heard of it. Heard of it. Yeah, okay, fair, yeah. This originally came out in 1995 by Cosmos, created by Klaus Teuber. When we said we were doing a negotiation game, this is the first one that popped into my mind. You're essentially building roads, settlements, and cities on an island. The island is composed of hexes. Those hexes have numbers on them. Every round, you'll be rolling dice to determine which resources are generated on those hexes. So you'll get things like brick, wood, or wheat, and the ever-important sheep. And where the negotiation comes in is that you're trying to gather these resources to build you know, your settlements, your cities, and your roads. And you need a certain number of resources to do those things. And typically, depending on how your game has gone so far, you may be short on some of those resources. Now, you can trade four of one resource to the bank for one of any other resource, which is terrible. If you're at a port or a harbor, whatever they call it in the game, you could do three to one, depending on what the harbor is. Or you can argue with your friends about, hey, I'll give you two brick for that sheep. And that's where the majority of the game really starts off. All the rest of it's basically just luck-based. I hope I've placed my, my settlements and cities in places that are likely to get rolled frequently. The rest of it is, hey, what kind of deal will you cut me? I've got too much of this resource I don't care about, and you need it, and you've got a resource I need. Let's be friends. Let's, uh, let's work something out. Many, many, anytime you have an offering of anything for sheep, it just sounds weird, but <laughs> it always <laughs> seems to come down to sheep in the game. Wood for sheep being the, uh, the uh, classic teenage yes. boy example. Yes, and this game has a bajillion expansions. There's 3D versions of it. There's like freaking 20-foot versions of it at conventions. Like this game exploded big when it came out, and it's still fairly popular now. Yeah, this is the one that really broke German-style board games into the U.S. At the time, this is the one everybody was talking about. Instead of I play board games, oh, you mean like Monopoly? (laughs) You would get I play board games. Oh, is it this Catan thing that I'm hearing about? I was basically importing copies at the time. And I managed to get one home and played it practically to death. Mine still says Franck Cosmos and pre-Spiel des Jahres or anything. And I swear that from an importer, I think I ordered like 16 copies in one batch for people that really wanted this game after I made them play it. And now here we are. 
Yep. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, this is the game that got me back into board gaming. A, a college friend of mine had me over to his place, and he's like, you want to play board games? I'm like, oh, I haven't done that since I was a kid. He played this, I was like, oh, wow, these have changed. <laughs> and thousands of this dollars actually later, a good game. here I am. <laughs> I wonder if you have some kind of legal recourse against that gentleman, you know? <laughs> think of how much he cost you. <laughs> oh, I don't want to think about that. Oh, no. <laughs> no, down that way lies madness, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> There are, of course, a bazillion iterations and variations on the Catan franchise. One that I just heard about is something called Legend of the Conquerors, which is sort of like a mini legacy campaign for Catan. Huh. I guess it was only a matter of time before they jumped on that bandwagon. It's only like three games, but apparently there's some interesting unlockable stuff in it if you like Catan enough to, to dive further into that. Interesting. I mean, I would play a Legacy Catan. Mike, you would play anything with the word Legacy on it. <laughs> You're not wrong. Not wrong. I mean, does that involve, like, decimating tiles, like uh, Risk Legacy, where you just nuke, nuke a tile? <laughs> apparently, it, it needs, like, the Cities and Knights expansion, and apparently it's, like, the home that you've been settling Catan from. The home country has come back to try and take over your colonies. <laughs> so, I don't know. I'm curious to find out more about it. Speaking of legacy games that Mike would be the best at. <laughs> this is not one of those. Yeah. So I am historically really bad at negotiation games because I just, I have a real problem with understanding the intrinsic value of things. And Chinatown, which is a Ayla or Ravensburger by Karsten Hartwick. Nailed it is a game where you are negotiating buildings within its city, Chinatown, but none of them have any intrinsic value to them. They have the value that you place on them, and that is just not something that I do. Well, the plots of land themselves don't earn you any money. You earn money by opening businesses, and businesses can be anything from a single square, which earns you a very small amount of money, to up to five or six connected squares. So depending on the type of business, you may have like a six square restaurant, which can generate a ton of money. So the key is getting plots of land that are orthogonally connected to one another. Everybody kind of randomly gets a set of tiles each turn. And then it's a matter of deciding which ones you want to keep and then haggling to trade the ones you don't want for the ones that you do. You're also trading the business at the same time. I have three pieces of a tropical fish shop and I need a fourth one to get the full value out of it. And I know Joe's got one, but I need to both have a place to put it and give something to Joe in return. And again, it's just pure negotiation on these two axes. And as Mike points out, if you aren't good at estimating what value someone will get from something, it becomes difficult. Because yeah, it's nothing but that. It's just you build things yeah. and then they generate money over time and you gain that value and you win by who has the most dollars at the end of the game. Right, and you might negotiate to keep something out of somebody else's hands. Somebody else might not be as incentivized to do that thing. So, like, you could end up making a bad trade for yourself to kind of prevent somebody else from getting a lot of value. But then a third player could come in and give the player who's getting a lot of value a equally as important piece of land to them on the other side of the property, and then you're stuck with... Garbage, and that third player, essence. unfortunately, tends to be you, Mike, because as you've said, you're not always good at yeah. estimating the value of things. I think if you have a bunch of players who have that sort of brain, 
and can immediately calculate, all right, well, if he gets that six space, he's probably going to be able to put a big business there, and it's only turn two, so he'll be making $40,000 the rest of the game. It probably can get reduced to a spreadsheet exercise. I don't, because I don't find that amusing. My issue with this game is I think by the fourth or fifth turn, it's easy enough to calculate that stuff in your head. And so the last third of the game feels a little too formulaic there that you can easily calculate those numbers. Yeah. At the beginning of the game, it's Wide open. too much in flux and too hard. But that's my been my issue with this game is it tends to get less interesting as it goes on. Because, yeah, you can easily throw some dollars in, calculate it so both of you get money and close the deal. Now, my big problem with this game is despite how bad I am at it, I do really enjoy playing <laughs> it. When we first started talking about this topic, Chinatown is the first game that came to mind for me because it's filling that pure negotiation slot in my library. But seeing all the other games we have on this list, I may be doing some rejuggling here. I certainly want to break Quo Vadis back out. And I'd convince anyone who likes this game to play Metropolis. But Frank, we can't find Metropolis. It's been out of print forever. You all can find someone <laughs> with a copy of Metropolis. Be real. Yes. <laughs> if only we were able to physically meet in some place. And better point. Another negotiation game that I have that I think is sort of interesting and unique is Traders of Genoa, or as it's known now, just Genoa, which was a 2001 Rio Grande release designed by Rudiger Dorn. This is sort of an odd beast. I feel like the mechanism may have been used since, but I don't know where. There is a stack of about five counters that you move around the board, and each turn, whoever is the active player rolls dice and places it in a random location on the board. And the board has some areas that are just streets, and then there are various warehouses and businesses and post offices and things where you can go to pick up cubes or drop off cubes or turn cubes into other kinds of cubes or get bonus one-time use special powers and that kind of thing. And you may have some cards in your hand that are saying, all right, I need to deliver a salt and a pepper to the restaurant. So you would need to go to the place where you can pick those up and then at some point deliver them. And everybody else has those as well. And basically, when you are the active player, you can just move the stack. And basically, each time you move the stack, you'll leave one of the tokens behind. So you can move a maximum of five spaces. And any token with a space in it is where an action can be taken. So basically, if you start out in the middle of the street and you say, all right, well, I can either go to the post office or I can go to the spice warehouse. Does anyone have a strong opinion about which way I should go and how much are you willing to give me to go there? So you've basically got people haggling over which way you should move the piece. Presumably there's some place you need to go eventually, so you may be heading more in one direction than the other. But it's basically all people trying to say, all right, I want to go to the spice warehouse because I really need a pepper. If you go there, then I will give you $2,000 and you get the other cube. You get the cinnamon cube that you pick up at the spice warehouse or whatever it might be. And then, of course, there are people who really want you to go this way, but they don't want to take that action because they want something else farther down the road that you'd have to go that way to get to. So it's sort of a multi-level bit of negotiation. Fundamentally, it's a pick-up-and-deliver game where you're getting stuff and you just need to go to certain places. But it's the negotiation about where you're going to go on any given turn that makes it interesting. And there's a lot of things available to trade. I mean, a pretty stunning amount. So there is a lot of scope for haggling and such. Yeah, I think there's like eight different types of trade goods. And then there are a bunch of special powers that you can get that let you do things like make an extra move, get additional contracts or exchange goods of different types. A lot of stuff you can do there. It's simple, but there's a lot of layers going on. Yeah, and a lot of fluidity in terms of everything. Yeah. 
It almost reminds me of uh, Istanbul a little bit. Yeah, true. Yeah, no, you're right. It didn't occur to me, but you're absolutely right. Although in Istanbul, if I remember, you're pretty much just moving for yourself, right? You are, yeah. There's no negotiation or anything. But yeah, at least it does reuse the the sort of stack mechanic. Yeah, it's the only other game I could think of that does that. Yeah. Genoa is sort of a good, less cutthroat, more, I don't know, a family-friendly is the right word, but more easygoing negotiation game. You won't lose any friends over it. <laughs> that's the way we chess <laughs> these games. So let's talk about a game maybe that's a little bit more cutthroat instead. Ooh. Specifically, uh, Chicken Caesar, released in 2012 by Nevermore Games, designed by Brian Fitcher and John Sizemore. In Chicken Caesar, you're playing a chicken dynasty, like you do, like, like you everyone do. does. And ultimately, the way that you win is you get a bunch of office insignia tokens on all of your dead chickens. Because your chickens are going to die. So there's a couple different positions, right? There's a Dales and Praetors and Censors and Consuls and the Caesar himself. Each of those positions have a specific power. And the game kind of encourages you to bribe each other during each of those phases. So, for example, the Adels will determine the tax rate that is going to be set this turn. And the Caesars and the Adels will get that money. They take in that money, and at the end of the game, what matters is the number of points you get from offense insignia tokens, plus the number of frumenti, which is the money currency in the game that you have. So they'll take in some money, but the next phase is the, the Praetors will decide how many Vigil Chickens versus Traitor Chickens are guarding each of those houses. And if there are more traitors than there are vigils, chickens will be taken. And at that point, you could bribe the people who are making those decisions to not kill your chickens or keep your chickens safe in some fashion. You only gain the office insignia token if your chicken stays in that position. And also, if your chicken stays in that position, they have the potential to move up into the next higher position. The Adels become the censor or the praetors become the councils and then the council goes up to... The top council of Caesar retires or gets removed in some way, becomes a new Caesar. And it's really all about negotiation. There's a phase in the game where you might have gotten spare office insignia tokens, right? If you had been an officer for multiple generations, you will have gotten an additional office insignia token that you can't use. Each chicken can only have on them one of each of the office insignia tokens. And so if that occurs, you now have a spare one and you can try to convince the one of the other positions that, hey, really, you want to declare one of your dead ancestors as, you know, as a censor in memoriam. And you put that down next to the grave headstones of all the chickens that have been killed by foxes, in essence. And you will put some money, you know, as an offering to the gods. But really, it's an offering to the censor, so he can decide if he wants to allow you to get those points going forward. And at the end of the game, you, in essence, score points based on the number of total symbols you have of each type. For example, if you were Caesar for a bunch of time and you can get Caesar on a bunch of different people, you're going to get a ton of points. Caesar is the most valuable. But there's a, a set number of frumenti you, in essence, get for the number of each insignia tokens you have assigned to your various chickens across generations. Yeah, I remember when we played this game, the first time we played it, it was a lot of fun. It was different. I mean, the fact that it had the sort of chicken motif, which honestly has virtually no impact on the game, but it's just a, a zero impact, silly little theming thing. It was actually pretty fun. And then I think we played a second game of it and... 
some of the cracks started to show. Yeah, I think once we knew the rules and kind of how the game flowed, right? Because the first time you're playing it, you're really learning it. And learning it was pretty fun because all the mechanisms feel very interactive. Mm -hmm. All the various components of the game interact with each other in very interesting and in some cases unexpected ways. First time you play... But once you know what those expected interactions are, it became, I think, very quickly a lot drier than it looked initially. Yeah, it got a little formulaic. Right, because then it's like, oh, well, if you're going to get X points from putting this token in here, well, then you'll need to pay me at least half of X or maybe higher. And whereas in the first game, it was like, well, what if I put one or two? Is that enough? After we kind of had a first playthrough, without the, the kind of the fun of the theme being kind of stripped back, it just became a lot drier of a game, I think, ultimately. Yeah, I feel like the chicken theming here was put into place to really hoist up how dry the game was, and it just didn't do that very well. I mean, that said, there are certainly people who enjoy that sort of thing. I mean, if you want a shorter version of Demacher, I'm not saying it's that level of complexity, but dryness is not necessarily a sign that people aren't going to enjoy it. I think for us, it didn't live up to that really fun first play. Right. The theme is very cute. It's a fine game. All the mechanisms interact in a very logical way, and all the mechanisms are generally kind of fun. But when it comes down to the like, well, okay, I can like mathematically figure out how many points you're going to get from this, right? It has kind of a spreadsheet really what it comes down to is, right, the first game, there was none of that spreadsheet-level thinking. And then the second game, once you kind of get into that spreadsheet-level thinking, there's a lot of places where the game can get bogged down in that kind of spreadsheet-level thinking in this game. And I think that is going to be a common problem with a lot of negotiation games where it's all about money or something like that. Chinatown has the same problem. We talked about it a little bit. And intrigue can even get that way, although it's quick enough and light enough that you're usually more concerned about paying back someone who betrayed you than actually doing it. Yeah, intrigue at least keeps the money you've gained hidden, although you do see when they gain it, if you want to keep track and or that kind of person. Yeah, for my money, the negotiation games I prefer are ones that are more like Dune or Diplomacy, where you're not just sort of mathing it out, you're having to take a lot of multiple axes of stuff and, and yeah, combine totally. them together. Yeah, in this game, there's no hidden information in Chicken Caesar. There's just information you need to remember from round to round, functionally. Oh, okay. So not a bad game, but not one that we are really that into anymore. Onto that hidden information and dryness. Our next game is uh, Article 27, the UN Security Council game. Not the longest game name on this list, by the way. But uh, definitely the driest. <laughs> a theme is about a particular article in the UN Security Council's charter. That's uh, special in terms of themes. This is 2012 by Stronghold Games and designed by Dan Baden, if you remember. If they were advertising this, putting out a big magazine and saying that Dan Baden's going to make you his bitch would have been <laughs> absolutely required. <laughs> For anyone that remembers John Romero, whatever that game was. Daikatana. Daikatana, yeah. It's a very light game. I mean, 30, 45 minutes. And it's based around the idea that members of the UN Security Council have a veto vote. What happens at the start of every game, you have a list of issues, kind of uh, similar to Democker, and they're worth positive and negative points on a hidden board. Each round, the Security Council leader basically gets a bunch of chips representing various issues or on a board, and he has to pass a resolution containing a number of those issues, about half of them. He gets five points if he succeeds. If anyone decides to veto it, they lose five points. And then if it passes, 
everyone gets points based on the outcome of those chips. It's hidden how many points you get and everything and summed up at the end of the game. So that's all hidden. But you do get an idea what people are voting against that might be their really awful issue to ditch. It's mechanically quite dry. Actually fairly easy. Mostly it's the UN Security Council leader trying to get a package together just to negotiate and get it passed and get us five points. <laughs> Sometimes taking a hit on it just because it works out better. But basically trying to resolve all of these requirements of what people want from this arbitrary set of things. So it's a little bit of a friendlier, I'm the boss, but it is pretty dry. I mean, it's all points and everything's pretty abstracted, but cute. It does sound a little bit on the dry side, but it also sounds like there's a lot of interesting points of negotiation in there. Yeah, totally. It's mostly negotiation about, okay, you take this. Okay, if you take, if I put this in, will you vote for the final things? Which does feel a bit like a, I'm the boss kind of trying to put a deal together that everyone agrees to. Are those deals binding? Really, it's, you know, vote for this, will you vote for this, and agreed, and then finally everyone votes. So really, non-binding. Okay. But everyone might want it to pass. But then you could say, yeah, sure, whatever, and then throw your veto. But of course, throwing your veto loses you five points, which is interesting. Right. Unlike I'm the boss, where you get that stop or takeover for free, here it actually costs you. Is it really worth it? Yeah. The artwork on the game looks really nice, too. Yeah, when I playtested with him, I was actually a playtester. I think I actually beat him. It's probably the only negotiation game I've ever beat him at, so <laughs> it's kind of sad. Stronghold, their components are usually quite oh, nice. Yeah. It's certainly very colorful for such a uh, potentially dry, dry topic. Yeah. 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 So, speaking of colorful games, I haven't actually played this game yet, but I've done a lot of looking into it because I'm just fascinated by it. It is called... <sighs> Sidereal Confluence, Trading and Negotiation in the Elysian Quadrant. Released in 2017 by WizKids, designed by someone going by the name of Tauseti Deichmann, which may be a pseudonym. This is, at its heart, a Euro game of pushing cubes around. Each player is a different alien civilization. You have a certain number of colonies, which produce certain types of cubes. You have certain abilities, which will let you exchange cubes for other cubes and that sort of thing, and eventually you're going to be turning those cubes into points. So far, so boring. Where it gets interesting is that no civilization can make the cubes they need to score enough points, so you have to be trading with everybody else. You're trading goods that you produce that aren't necessarily valuable to you to someone who desperately needs them in order to make their victory points, and then they have a different kind of cube they're going to give to you that you can do for other things. Each civilization has its own unique tech tree and way of building things out. You have planetary colonies, you have spaceships, and pretty much everything is tradable. You know, if you build your exciting new technology, you can share it with another player. You can combine different technologies to upgrade them in certain ways. Each turn starts out with a bunch of trades that go on. Then you could research technologies and that kind of thing. Then basically everybody simultaneously runs their engine and produces all the cubes and that kind of thing. And it repeats. There's, I think, nine or ten different races in the game, and they all play very differently. I think this is a game that would be kind of brain-burny to learn for the first time. Part of the problem is that all of the civilization names, with the exception of Unity, are almost impossible to pronounce in human mouths. <laughs> there is the uh, Kitzer Ad Adhocracy, 
and the Kajestavalikalum Directorate. You know, the, this is... The K-Lion Yeah, this is very much from the lots of asterisks and consonants school of naming your alien species. But, you know, everybody has their own little set of rules, and it almost feels like you'd be relearning the game if you played a different civilization. I'm fascinated by this game, although I don't know how playable by humans it is. <laughs> Actually, from looking at the game and reading about it, I've yet to get it to the table. I do think it's playable by humans. There's enough, I mean, there's enough things that are the same about each of them. The iconography is really the complex part, understanding what the cards all mean. There aren't that many differences between the races, except since they don't have their own cards, how to play them is baffling. But I think the rules are structurally close enough. Well, I know there's a, a what looks to be a pretty good tabletop simulator version of it, so maybe we can hmm. try that sometime. Yeah, I'm interested in trying it I'm out. I'm definitely it, curious about it. It looks fascinating, honestly, from a from a thousand foot view. Oh, you kind of need that thousand foot view. Have you looked at the pictures of people playing this on a table? It takes up like monstrous amounts of table space. There's a yeah. lot of stuff in the game. Yeah, like just the fact that every race has its own tech tree in the format of cards, not to mention the communal stuff is all in the form of cards. This just looks like somebody took a box of magic cards and just dumped it out <laughs> onto the table. It is so space green. Which is why, again, I think playing it online might be a good choice. But yeah, the colonies are cards, the technologies are cards, your rules are cards. There's a lot of cards here. Yeah. The other thing I think that is going to be nice about it is that unlike some of the games we talked about, it's not like it's a game where you can calculate what the value of this cube is to the other players. It's like, I barely understand what I'm doing. I have no idea why your civilization wants these shiny rocks, but if you'll give me some food for it, I'm down. <laughs> At least in the actual rules, they give you some structure for what roughly a cube is worth, enough to at least start, which is awesome. Each of the little player mats does often say, well, you will probably want to try and get more of these things. You don't give away too much of this because it's really valuable to you. So there's good guidance for each player there. I think it's just yeah. getting your brain around that first big glob of rules. And after yeah. that, it's probably not too bad. Yeah, I desperately want to play this as well. Well, we should schedule a time. Down. That brings us to the end of our list of negotiation games. Obviously, there's a lot more of them out there. If you have any favorites, we'd like to hear about them. What are, what are your guys' favorites as far as the list we've talked about here? Or if there's one that we didn't talk about that you really love? I am not great at negotiation games, but like I said earlier, I think Chinatown is one that I just enjoy playing for some reason. <laughs> like, if somebody asked me, like, what is it about Chinatown that you enjoy? I don't know. It just, it is a lot of fun to play. And anytime somebody says, let's play Chinatown, I will be down for it, knowing full well I will lose. Z-Man version is also very attractive, I think. It's got a real nice it's board. Gorgeous. For me, I think as far as ones that I can actually play with people in my life, probably Traders of Genoa is the one that I enjoy most. Dune is a wonderful game that I really have to be in the right mood for and get the right people to play. Yeah. And Diplomacy is really kind of in its own category for me because like i said i mostly play online now so i have to write lengthy emails full of lies and half truths and that sort of thing and i enjoy that but it's not really a board game at that point for me it's dune i mean obviously it does require the right group but like i really like that as a game often leading the charge and like let's get a group together and do this i like the experience of it and how it interacts with all the various components in my case it's metropolis or settlers for games i actually play with the, you know, worship of Dune as the great game ever, 
It's just I don't get to play it ever. Well, <laughs> it turns out we have some people here who like it, so we can fix that for you. I'd have to say uh, <laughs> mine's to be determined since I haven't played most of these games. I desperately want to try Dune, so we need to make that happen. Absolutely. But, uh, well, we've got five people here. I'm sure we can find somebody else. We just need one more person, and we got a, we got a whole table. Yeah, good point. I do have some other games I've wanted to try. Oh my god, there's an axe in my head, the game of international diplomacy. I've, I've heard about that one, yes. I mean, I love the title. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. That's the one where it's basically you're in a session of the UN and then the zombies invade or something? Actually, it's a troop of assassin axe jugglers, and you're all trying to run for the door while negotiating and trying not to die. <laughs> Again, like you do. The good news is, at least for us, it doesn't really help our listeners so much, is that we've actually started committing to a semi-regular schedule of getting together online and playing some games. So hopefully we'll be able to get more of those in. And as always, if you folks have comments, things you want to tell us about, ask us about, offer opinions, find us on Facebook, comment on the AscentOfBoardGames.com page. Reviews on iTunes are always gratefully accepted. And in general, everybody... Stay healthy, wash your hands, vote if applicable, and uh, we will talk to you again next month. Stay safe Mm -hmm. out there, everybody. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentOfBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. I really need to wear pants, because otherwise I feel like I'm not a human being anymore.